0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. As museums across Japan celebrate the 1400th anniversary of the death of Prince Shotoku Taishi, the legendary figure who brought Buddhism to Japan, the Sainsbury Institute together with the Sainsbury Centre for Visual Arts at the University of East Anglia is currently collaborating with major universities and museums in Japan to create a special exhibit commemorating the event. This Shotoku intervention will display the Sainsbury Centre's collection of Japanese Buddhist and Shinto artifacts centred around a rare 13th-century Kamakura period statue of a female Shinto deity. To better explain the significance of Shotoku Taishi, Beyond Japan will be exploring over three episodes the religious, political, and historical context of this dynamic period of East Asian history. We hope you enjoy our Shotoku mini-series. Our first Shotoku interviewee is Marcus Tuan, Professor of Japanese Studies at the University of Oslo, who he will help us understand the changing faiths of Japan in the 7th century to the buddhist concept of honji suijaku a notion which allowed buddhist monks to explain the gods worshipped in japan at the time or kami as traces of buddhist deities mark explains that our contemporary standing of religion as competing bodies which seek to shape how people live their lives with the goal of a happy afterlife does not apply in this period of time that the worship of deities had much more practical intentions and that politics were at the core of the spread of buddhism we hope you enjoy the show Good afternoon, Mark. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. So first off, I'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your
1: interests have brought you there? Yeah, I teach Japanese studies uh, here in the University of Oslo. And um, I've been uh, working mostly on the history of Japanese religion, but, uh, but mostly on Shinto. And uh, the way I started out with that, I actually spent one and a half years at uh, a Shinto university, one of two Shinto universities in Japan, as a research student. When I, yeah, this is uh, 25 years ago or something. So there I had the opportunity to uh, study together with prospective Shinto priests. And um, I didn't take my diploma because I wasn't able to. Uh, to do the Caesar thing of sitting on your knees for long enough. <laughs> but um, but I, I got to know quite a lot of Shinto priests and I, I got to work in shrines as a general help and uh, for training and things like that. So that, that triggered my interest. Yeah, and after that, so I've, I've uh, tried to figure out the history of sh- shrines and of kami kami worship, and the conceptualization of Shinto, and what was there before, and what happened when it conceptualized as Shinto, and yeah, all those kinds of things.
0: Great. So the central concepts to this episode is Honji Sujaku, which you translated in your 2003 book, Buddhas and Kami in Japan, Honji Sujaku as a combinatory paradigm, as, quote, original forms of deities and their local traces, end quote. You wrote that this concept is central to pre-modern Japanese religion in that it stated that local native deities known as kami are emanations of universal Buddhist deities. Could you give a brief historic context of Honji Sujaku explaining how it was that Buddhism and Shinto deities were brought together in this way?
1: Yeah, so maybe the best way to explain it is to go backwards in time actually and and explain a little bit about Honji Sujaku's historiography. Because as, as you probably covered already before, um, what happened in, in the 19th century is that uh, Shinto and Buddhism were separated. But a more accurate description of what happened would be that a, an ideological view that sees Shinto as Japan's indigenous original religion, that was once a pure national religion, was created by throwing out all everything that reminded people of Buddhism. And then, so when you start with that view or that ideology, you would say, then the question arises, so how did they get mixed up? Starting from the idea that once you had two pure entities, you know, pure Buddhism versus pure Shinto, and some way they got mixed up. And then Honji Suijaku was the way that people pounced on to explain how that happened. And Honji Suijaku was then the medieval teaching, because me, yeah, medieval times as the Dark Age, the medieval teaching that Buddhists used to incorporate the once Shinto gods, right? So saying that, uh, yeah, those gods, they're they are actually just emanations of our Buddhas. So that was like the standard theories from, from the 19th century into the post-war period, I guess. And then at some point, Japanese scholars started writing about this whole thing about that being a pure Shinto in ancient times that somehow got swallowed up by Buddhism, how that has nothing to do with historical reality. And there were a lot of studies about the separation of Shinto from Buddhism in the 19th century and how the new Shinto that was created had no roots in history. So there was lots of writing about that, but what there wasn't so much writing about was what actually happened, what, what it actually looked like before the separation. So how this sort of combined religion that has both Buddhas and gods in it, how that worked and what it looked like and so on. So that was what I was interested in. So Honji the concept itself is a Buddhist concept, right? And it comes from Buddhist theology and mainly in Japan, Tendai, And uh, it's about how you have an essence, like for example um, cosmic enlightenment or something, and then that essence manifests itself, for example, in the form of Shakyamuni Buddha. And in that sense, then Shakyamuni, the Buddha, is an emanation or a suijaku, a footstep, you could say, a footprint on our soil, (laughs) on Earth, of a larger concept, a larger sort of disembodied cosmic principle. So that idea was in late classical times, say so in the it starts around uh, the 11th, 12th century, was also applied in Japan to relation between Buddhas and kami deities. So these kami deities being explained as manifestations of Buddhas. So if you have a temple shrine complex, as you often had with where the temple has Buddhas and the shrine that guards it, so to say, the guardian deity has a kami to say that, yeah, these kami in the shrine, they're actually footsteps or manifestations of the Buddha in a different form that is adapted to Japanese reality.
0: Let's see. So when describing the nature of religion in Japan, as we just kind of discussed It's often simply explained that there are two faiths of buddhism and shinto however we learned in an earlier episode that shinto does not readily lend itself to conventional understandings of a religion and you argued in your book that uh, worship of shinto deities was central to japanese buddhism can you give us some examples of shinto elements incorporated into buddhism in japan and indicate whether any elements of shinto were kept separate from buddhism
1: Yeah, so the the premise for your question is that you had Shinto and Buddhism, right? (laughs) It helps a lot if we just put that to one side. I know that's very hard to do. But if you think about Buddhism itself, right? It has Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Devas, which are basically gods, right? And then you've got demons and spirits and so on under it. And wherever Buddhism went, whether you're in Tibet or China or even in Southeast Asia, These spirits of the mountains, for example, mountain deities or even dakini kind of evil demons, they are explained as emanations or helpers or protectors of the Buddha and the the Buddhist community and the Dharma. And often that also they even happens with like patriarchs or generals or whatever. They are explained as forces of the Dharma, right? And um, they are manifestations of Amitabha or Avalokiteshvara or something like that. For example, local mountain deities in Tibet are often explained that way. And it was the same in Japan. So I think you have to imagine when Buddhism first came to Japan, that's in the 6th century. We are in prehistorical times. But you have to imagine that the story that Japan was Shinto before Buddhism came along, we have to put that to one side as a Meiji construct and think of, okay, what what did Japan actually look like? So you had uh, people doing agriculture, growing rice in some places. In most places, you had people hunting and gathering and lots of local cultures and lots of deities in every little place. You had chieftains and so on. So... There was nothing like Shinto or whatever, <laughs> but and, and you had lots of Korean immigrants, right? So um, a very diverse universe of all kinds of beliefs and practices, including like all kinds of Korean and Chinese things with yin and yang and I don't know what. So And Buddhism coming along and as in other places in, in Asia, trying to put some system on top of that. Of course, not saying that Shinto should go and because now we should all become, become Buddhists, but saying that, yeah, Buddhism can help to, for example, tame these evil demons or, or these local deities. We know them by another name, think something like that.
0: So they explained Buddhism as another way of understanding the belief systems that were sort of already kind of in place in Japan.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Buddhism had to make sense of itself, right, in that, in that setting. And um, as everywhere else, the Buddhists did that by incorporating existing cults and ideas and uh, deities and Buddhifying them.
0: Right. In an earlier episode we had about uh, looking at modern Shinto, we saw that Shinto as we know it today is, a, is indeed a modern construct. As you said, it was a product of the Meiji Restoration. How should we understand Shinto as it was in the sixth century? Can we even call it Shinto?
1: Yeah, so my argument is that there was nothing like Shinto in the sixth century. right. So one thing is that the word didn't exist, but maybe that, that's a very minor point. But by saying like even if yeah, we drop Shinto, we call it a Japanese indigenous religion, for example, that there was a Japanese indigenous religion in Japan in the sixth century, I don't think that makes sense. So what was that in the 6th century, right? We are in the Kofun period. So people were building these big tombs, and that's what the period is called after. And those tombs they have, for example, um, between the, the, the cults that happened at those tombs, and also other cultic sites that have been excavated from this period, and what becomes Shinto practices later, there's no connection whatsoever. So, what we have is tombs, we have like bronze bells, bronze swords, and implements. And in the text that we have that we today regard as the oldest text of Shinto, so for example, Kojiki, there's not a word about any tombs. Or, or and there's, not, there's not, well, tombs are mentioned like this emperor ended up here or something, but it doesn't say anything about Haniwa which is those ceramic figures that are put on top of the tomb and that offer that clearly have some kind of cultic significance, but they're not mentioned at all. And there's also no mention of all these bronze bells, for example, that are excavated everywhere at ritual sites. So, so there's a very clear break.
0: Yeah, so I'm wondering, do we know if, they, if we had Torii gates, the famous Shinto gates that we see around Japan today? Did we have shrines, uh, do we have the famous paper lightning stripes and the uh, woven threads? Do we know that these things existed in the sixth century or are these all modern constructions of Shinto?
1: Yeah, no, I don't think, we, so we, we don't think there were any Torii gates, for example. Uh, shrines that had buildings are, uh, are, um, are, are definitely a later development. So one of the earliest shrines that actually had a building with the idea that the deity was dwelling in a shrine, like in a building permanently, was probably Isse. That was a very early one, at least. And people have pointed out that this is probably a Buddhist influence, like the idea of a temple, but then uh, applied to a deity. So in the way that a Buddha lives permanently in a kind of palace, that, um, that was copied. So... That's a post-Buddhist development. Yeah, the zigzag papers, they're also a lot later. So they're probably derived from cloth offerings, which were a Taoist import. (laughs) So yeah, those elements came together to become something that we call Shinto a lot later. Yeah, so we can see that Shinto
0: is a real mixture of different religions all kind of coming together in in
1: Japan in this time period. Yeah, so when we think about Shinto. So, what was there, right? Because because you're also right in the sense that that, that, it, that must have been something, right? So, it's building on something. It was just not created out of thin air either, of course. And um, what was that something, right? I think what is very important is what the court did with the, all these these deities. So, I think what you had you, you had a kind of was uh, uh, it sort of a quilt kind of with lots of small chieftaindoms. Right. And a lot of chieftains who are local leaders who uh, derive their authority from saying that we descend from a deity on this mountain or something like that. Or we were the ones who, for a very long time ago in the age of the gods or something, chased away the evil deities from this place so that people could live here. And therefore, we need to be making offerings to these evil deities to keep them away. And therefore, we need to be the boss in this place. So that was there. And um, the court created a kind of ritual system building on that. The Koizuki is an expression of that, right? So you have one pantheon of all kinds of deities and important local deities, of allies of the court were put in there and it was turned into a kind of a plot and that plot was about the the heavenly deities conquering the earthly deities and establishing heavenly order on earth and the emperor is kind of the descendant of these heavenly deities as are the main court allies of the emperor while all the other local lords are descendants of earthly deities and so on. There was a, a court cult that I often call the Jingi system, the Jingi cult, because Jingi means heavenly and earthly deities, a Chinese concept that was imported to create this story. But yeah, it worked because there were all these local cults, right? So, so that, that could be sort of put together in this new category of earthly deities. So that is one thing. And then the court appointed also court priests who made offerings to these earthly deities in the name of the heavenly deities, which is the court. Both to say, we made these offerings, these offerings made the rice grow, so you should pay us tribute. (laughs) Or like, yeah, so your local chieftain, he has authority because he's the descendant of the earthly deities, but we are the descendants of the heavenly deities. So, you know, there is a difference. Kind
0: of like how in Europe you had uh, the princes and the kings who said, we are, we've we been chosen by God and that's our right to rule. Is it similar to that?
1: Yeah. 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 So this priestly function of local rulers, I think you can see it probably all over the world. And that developed also in Japan. And um, and the court developed that further by creating a layer above it. But the interesting thing is that this whole jingi system, as I call it, or this this idea with the heavenly and the earthly deities and their court offerings to local deities far away—all that was invented. Uh, well, oh yeah, so so probably started in the seventh century, which was a century after Buddhism had come to Japan. So at the same time as this was going on, the court was also trying another route, and the other route was to create this uh, Buddhist network of temples that positioned the emperor as a kind of sponsor of the Buddha, right? So another kind of huge uh, cosmic project of turning the land into a Buddha land and um, creating lots of good karma to make the rice grow and to uh, prevent epidemics and so on. So that happened at the same time. So this jingi cult and Buddhism, they came to Japan one after the other. Buddhism first, actually, and then this jingi system second, and then both sort of sponsored by the same court. I mean, I'm sure lots of things were going on outside the court as well, but we simply don't know because we don't have any sources on that. But then it's only logical that the next step will be like, so for example, that this is a time of lots of epidemics in Japan, to say that uh, those epidemics are caused by angry deities and um, they can be prevented or stopped by, by Buddhist means. So we have to build a Buddhist temple next to the shrine of this angry deity, and then the, the priest there can create lots of merit or good karma and transfer that to the deities, tame the deity, transform the deity into a Buddhist avatar or a manifestation of the Buddha or at least a protector of the Buddha, or something like that, by Buddhist means. Yeah, and in that way, the the... The two are integrated even more closely, right yes. And so then you see the the founding of lots of shrine temples spreading around all of Japan, and, and uh, you see
0: that um, that Buddhism sort of brought in this idea of structured religion and sort of the marriage of uh faith and puts
1: in in that sense right yeah, yeah, maybe you can put it like that, yeah, it's a very much a part of politics, so so yeah if you. Call it religion. It's not about converting people to, uh, to a certain lifestyle or anything like that. No, I also have a, a bit of a problem with uh, with sort of categorizing it as religion because all of this is, as much as religious practice, it's also a way of of ensuring that the world flourishes, that the rice grows, that the weather is favorable, that the epidemics don't go around, that people obey you know, all those things of, you know, a good rule. <laughs> sure. So very yeah. practical purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's not about going to hell or heaven. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you, you point to the pluralism of Buddhist deities as a central element of Honji Sujaku, indicating mm. that this allowed it to be, quote, consciously transnational, end quote, and spread throughout India, Korea, China, and Japan. How could a transnational religion operate and communicate across such distances if it did at all?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> I'm not sure I get your meaning because I don't think so there's a religion out there that's operating. If you get what I mean. Yeah. So so but 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 those ideas were attractive to local Japanese elites, right? Mm. I cannot really say anything about what villages were doing or anything like that because we have no clue. But um, So the only thing we know is we're like what court sources tell us. So it's, it's all about elite plans or elite practices. So if we're talking about uh, the 7th, 8th century or something like that, so Japan is being pulled into, the, into the, the world of East Asia in the sense that the Tang empire is expanding and Japan has lost a few wars in Korea... And, um, and there is worries that um, the Chinese will invade, for example. Um, so, so there's very much a need to try to update Japan to create a stronger national or a stronger state in Japan. And you see this wave of importing statecraft from Korea and China. And this is what gives the impetus to create both this jingi system, this jingi cult, to write down texts like the Kojiki as a national history and to build temples all over the place. Since, after all, this was something that the Korean king, xiong Myung gave to Japan as a gift in thanks for help in the war. So he said, uh, yeah, um, he has some Buddhist scriptures and a statue and some uh, nuns and they are monks, and they can help you to implement this new um, form of statecraft. So um yeah it was obviously the thing to do at the time. So this was seen
0: as uh, Buddhism was seen as essential parts to advancing civilization at that time to advancing statecraft and you had to bring in this more structured idea of religion into the country.
1: Yeah uh, yeah if we drop religion so you have we had to okay. so <laughs> yeah because maybe it's more like engineering. So the Korean king has learned from China that this is the way to create merit and to stop it from raining when it shouldn't be raining and to make the sunshine and to make the rice grow and to stop the epidemics and to make sure that people don't rebel. So how do you do it? Well, you harness the powers of the Buddha, right? So you, you make lots of good karma and then you spread this karma. You, you transfer the good karma to the king, to the rice fields, to the bad spirits that make the illness. And in that way, you'll make your country better. And that's what you should be doing. And I think that was very convincing. And uh, if you think of this time as a time of, it's almost like a Black Death time, you know, because all these epidemics are streaming in from East Asia together with all the ideas and the immigrants and the trade that is booming in this time for the first time. They're building Chinese capitals, So putting all these people together in one little city, And then uh, calling them in from all over Japan and sending them out again and building post stations and provinces and getting all these farmers to come in with tribute or for work duty to the capital. So illnesses spread in a way that they've never done before. So something has to be done about this. At the same time, China is maybe conspiring together with the Shilla kingdom in Korea about to invade the country. And uh, so, yeah, we need all the help we can get. And if this is the new engineering, that's what we should be doing.
0: Yeah, so all this social change and unprecedented events that are happening is the impetus which ushers in Buddhism into Japan at this time.
1: Yeah, yeah. And maybe you can also imagine how that that can boom. So you invest all this money in building temples in every province, 66 provinces, two temples in each province. And then, you know, still the epidemics don't stop. So the, the conclusion is obviously that you need to build more, right? <laughs> Give, spend more on this. So so you, you get this kind of dynamic. If it's angry gods that cause this, right? Then you should make more offerings to them. So th- this has its own dynamic. And what is maybe most interesting in the context of this podcast is then that we're talking one logic, one, one engineering or statecraft art, right? We're not talking like Okay, we had Buddhists and we had Shintoists, and they they were talking to each other and trying to convert each other, anything like that, right? It's not like that at all. So sure. the, the the gods or the Buddhas or the were, were like a fact of life, like the epidemics and the weather, and um, we're trying to deal with it basically. When we when we think of religions meeting
0: in pre modern Europe. There are a lot of bloody images of the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition and the Reformation of England, which come to mind. Uh, So as we don't have these two very established religions meeting, did Honji Sujaku allow Buddhism to totally avoid hostile resistance in Japan? Was there any resistance against Buddhism or what was happening there?
1: Yeah, but now you're going back again to thinking of this as two religions that were fighting. Okay, together. how should we be referring to Buddhism
0: and what came before Shinto? How should we refer to these things in this context?
1: Yes, so I think, so if you have this, you have this combined system from the start, right? Um, so the gods and the Buddhas, and they're all part of one reality, just like the weather or the illnesses. And uh, we're doing all kinds of things to deal with it, right? And to to solve the problems. Sure. And at the same time, there's also, you know, monks are going to China to study and learn also new rituals, learn new texts, uh, learn more about how to engineer the world. And they come back and then Japan has its own dynamics with these these gods having a big role to play and what temples are doing. I think most temples were connected to some kind of shrine. And many, many temples had this special task of making sure that this deity didn't unleash all kinds of illness, for example, or even kill the emperor or something like that. So it's logical that these monks tried to figure out how to explain the Japanese situation as it had developed in Buddhist terms. And that this Honji Suijaku idea was an obvious tool to do that, Right so saying that um in the same way as in china monks are taming evil spirits by transferring good karma to them or in the same way as in you know in tibet buddhas manifest themselves as uh, as mountain deities or in the same way as in the sutras as for example avalokiteshvara manifests himself in, in countless ways to help these sentient beings. So in the same way in Japan, the Buddhas manifest themselves in the form of these deities. Yeah, and this is where Honji Suijaku came in handy. But it was not about right. uh, two religious groups fighting each other or anything like that.
0: Yeah, So it's not in the sense of uh, religion as uh, a means of a code of ethics, a way of understanding life and what, what comes after life. It was uh, in this time, in this context, um, Buddhism was just another way of understanding phenomena in the world around you. We have, Of course, there's this political side, as we've covered, but uh, the best way to understand it is there wasn't these strong differences in what Buddhism taught and what the local faiths of Japan taught at the time. And that's allowed them to come together so easily.
1: Yeah, I think... Um, so if you say, okay, that was Shinto and Buddhism. So Shinto and Buddhism what, right? I think... There was a difference between Buddhist temples and shrines. And um, these shrines, they were called jingi shrines, actually. And they were part of a different ritual system. So there were lists of shrines that got offerings in the sixth month and the 12th month, for example, or for harvesting time and planting time. And they were in a different category from temples. And I guess you also had like a difference between Okay, so you had um, ordained monks who work at a temple, and then you had priests who work in shrines and who are not ordained and who who can marry and who can eat meat, for example, while monks cannot because they they have these vows and vinaya and all that. So religious professionals identified as one or the other. There were a lot of categories in between, too, but at least there you can see some sort of identity. But I don't think you have any sort of lay identity saying, yeah, okay, I'm Protestant, I'm Catholic, I'm Buddhist, I'm Shinto. I mean, just forget about that. That just, that was not, sure, sure. not at all a thing. I think it still, it never was. It still isn't, right? Except for some yeah, small definitely. new religions or something. So, and then you had these gods, right? So so you can say, okay, this is a Buddha, this is a Buddhist deity, and this is a Kami, so that's a Shinto deity. But then, you know, that's where they weave this web of Honji Suijaku saying that, yeah, this looks like a Shinto deity, but actually it's a, it's a manifestation of this Buddha, and so on. So then, you know, that is immediately also subverted. Um, but, uh, mm. but, yeah, you can only identify two things as two different forms of something if there's a difference between them in some sense, I guess. But the difference there is, is it mentioned in the sutras or not, basically?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. we have a very interesting artefact at our museum here in Norwich, the Sainsbury Centre, which is a scroll which depicts Shinto deities and it tries to explain them as Buddhist deities. So it's a really tangible example of that. So when looking at the Asaka period in Japan, which is roughly the 6th and 7th century when uh, Prince Shotoku supposedly brought Buddhism to Japan via Korea, we can see there were heavily political connotations in this introduction as the move sought to bolster the power of the imperial family. Do we know if the politics behind the spreading of Buddhism shapes the way it was practiced in Japan? Practiced at the
1: time or later? At the time. At the probably time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Buddhism came to Japan probably in at least two different ways. And one way is, is the way we know least about, I guess. And this is, for example, with um, immigrants or refugees who came from the mainland. So popular practices that spread from below. Very hard to know anything about that, but it's very likely it happened. And then there was the top-down part of it. And the top-down part of it was the state or the emperor or the court building huge temples and investing lots and lots of money in that or resources. So these temples, they were the biggest buildings. So they had a big staff of people all with the fancy clothing and then not really doing anything productive, I guess. What they were producing was this good karma, which of course was a very valuable substance and uh, transferring that to the court and the emperor and the state and the land and the people. So it's a bit of a ritual economy in the sense that taxes are uh, plowed back in the system that created those taxes in the first place, which is the, which is the, uh, the Buddhist establishment. And that part of Buddhism, those, those state temples, they were basically closed off from normal people so they they were banned by law from preaching to commoners, doing anything else but state business. All these monks had to be ordained at the imperial temple Todaiji in the capital. Yeah, so very much uh, state affair at this stage. So yeah, obviously that is uh, has a lot of influence on on the way Buddhism is practiced, right? So people who ended up in these uh, state monasteries and state temples, they were basically order to go there yeah it's interesting to think that there's two sides to this
0: there's the the top down bottom up introduction of, of, of Buddhism as yeah. it were of which we only know one side of the story which is the, obviously the side that where there is text which is you know uh, yeah. which comes out of the imperial courts and I, guess, I suppose that's, that's where most Buddhist artifacts from the time would have come from would have been those uh, created for these uh, imperial temples
1: is that correct? Yes yeah yeah exactly and and it's also i guess you were talking about the kofun period so, so asuka period this is the time when they the, they stopped building kofun right
0: yeah
1: and uh, i think it's also very um, telling so the temples replaced the kofun the kofun were and also before they they well they are the size of, of pyramids right they were an enormous investments of labor and resources designed to uh, reflect power and to build power. And um, temples were often built next to the biggest coffins, and they replaced them as a new form of, of ritual power, dominating the landscape in the same way as the, as the coffin had done before. And the kofun were, were abandoned. They were not used afterwards actively to create for ritual purposes, for example. They were just abandoned and uh, overgrown and the temples took over that uh, role. So that also tells you something about what temples were for, right? Yeah, very interesting. So um, thank
0: you for answering all my questions. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other
1: products you're currently working on? Yeah, um, right now I'm writing about, the, um, about festivals, about the Gion Festival, uh, to, to be precise, so, which is a huge festival in Kyoto. And it's, it's sort of an interesting festival in this context also uh, because it, it goes back all the way to uh, the 10th century and it's one of the three big festivals, as they say these days, of Japan, a summer festival in the old capital. The deities in there, are, today they are supposed to be uh, Shinto deities like Susanoo and so on, and they are housed in a shrine, Yasaka Jinja, but if you go back to the 1870, yeah, 1871, it became Shinto, 1870. So the, 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 these deities had completely different names. And the main one was called Gosu Tenno, which is the Deva King with the ox-headed Deva King from northern India. And uh, the Yasaka Jinja shrine was a temple with temple monks. Closely connected to uh, the An Yakuji or Mount Hiei co- complex, uh, right outside of of Kyoto, and today you can see that uh, yeah the shrine talks about Susanoo and uh, and like these deities of the Kojiki and uh, and about Shinto and it has got Shinto priests and it's a complete Shinto thing, but if you go into Kyoto city, into the streets that put up like the floats that, that are in the parades and so on. They all have their own streets, shrines and street uh, altars and so on. And they all have scrolls and, and statues and I don't know what of gozutenno the way it was from before Meiji. So very messy too. (laughs) And uh, yeah, if if you look at these kind of practices then that actually sort of are very much out there in the street, you know, so that are the big symbols of Japanese culture also. Um, You can see that, so this attempt to separate, to create this distinction between Shinto and Buddhism has not really filtered through at all.
0: Yeah. Well, fascinating. I'm sure we all look forward to hearing more about that research. Great. Well, thank you for joining me on the show today, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. you can find a link to Mark's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Professor Brian Lowe of Princeton University, who will help us understand the challenge of determining history from myth when looking at ancient texts. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.